0: in this text, thank you that you are not a God who responds to blasphemy with wrath all the time, uh, but you teach. And we ask that you would instruct us this morning. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. So, last time, uh, as we are walking our way through Exodus, we see Moses and Aaron go into the courtyard, really, of Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, you need to let Israel go, right? And Pharaoh puts up a fight and ends up putting heavier burdens upon Israel because of their so-called idleness and so-called laziness. That section ends in verse 21 of chapter 5. And we picked it up here in 22 because now Moses turns to Yahweh and he issues his complaint. He, he prays to Yahweh. And it is a complaint, not just because of how the Lord speaks to Yahweh, but, but he is taking up the issue of his people before God. That's what a, that's what a, a good mediator would do. Moses is a mediator for Israel hears the problem of Israel, and he takes that issue and he complains to God. Now, not all complaining is bad. Uh, Moses's in this case is very bad, but not all complaining to the Lord is bad. But as Moses does that, Yahweh then responds, and, and that's essentially the whole chapter aside with the genealogy proving that Moses is in fact a man with circumcised lips. So, but where where this actually has a rub and traction in our life is, is this. Moses has told Yahweh all along, I don't want to do this. <laughs> I'm the wrong man for the job, right? And Yahweh calls him anyways. And, and Moses yields and, and he goes with it. I think we can all identify there are times in our lives where we have um, heard the call of God on our life for some decision, moving or taking a job or marrying someone or whatnot. And we say, hopefully not for marriage. <laughs> hopefully not for marriage. We say, I don't want to do this. Okay, now you know why I said that. Um, I don't want to do this, but I'll, I'll do it anyways. Your will be done, Lord, Right? Your will be done. And we go along anyways, only to then later find out after submitting to the Lord that going with his way is actually not easy. It's actually very difficult. And then we in the response would say, I told you so, God. This is why I didn't want to do this. That, that's Moses in a nutshell. He never wanted this job. Yahweh called him to this. And now at the burdens that Pharaoh has laid upon Israel, Moses is saying, I told you, I told you I was the wrong man. But what Moses does in questioning Yahweh is reveal that when we question God, the, the answers to our questions are found in God's plans, his his covenantal plans. That when we, when we come to the Lord and we, we express doubt, confusion, or simply question him and saying, you have done wrong, when we look at what God has done in the gospel, we realize, we realize all our questions are unfounded. And who God is in his character should, should never be questioned we don't know the whole story. Uh, Moses might have thought this exodus would have been done by the weekend and they can get out of there and then move on with their lives. But we don't know everything. And Moses didn't know everything. But what we do see is questioning the Lord is solved by looking at how God covenants, his, covenants himself with others, us. And that's where all our answers are given. Maybe not in like specific detail on why this happened, why and when. But as the repeated phrase in here happens four times, I am Yahweh. That's the answer to the question Moses has. That's the answer to any question we have when we say, why has this happened, Lord? Why have you done this to me? Why have you done evil? I don't get it. And the reply is, "I am Yahweh that communicates his his faithfulness to care for his people and his trustworthiness so we're going we 're going to walk through this here and and just kind of notice how Moses questions God, God responds, Moses responds with some more doubt so first, first off, my first point frequently asked blasphemous questions that 's Um, that's point one. So we all know frequently asked questions, facts, right? Frequently asked blasphemous questions from Moses in verse 22 of chapter five. He says, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Moses issues a threefold accusation against God. He says why have you done evil? Why did you ever send me? And then he states, you have not delivered your people at all. And, and, and with the phrasing of at all, Moses thinks this is, this is final. This is done. There's no, there's no other chapter to be written. This is the end of the story. But look what Moses does. He questions God's goodness. Why have you done evil to this people? He, now, Pharaoh is the one who has done evil to the people. Pharaoh is the one who has increased the burdens of Israel. But Moses says, this is your fault, God. You have done evil. Now, Moses uh, does understand and will come to understand better God's sovereignty over all things. But God does not do evil, uh, Evil is under his sovereignty, but God is no author of evil. And because Moses doesn't know the Lord as well as he should, he he actually attributes this to God. He puts all the blame on Yahweh, none on the wicked, cruel despot Pharaoh. (laughs) Secondly, he says, why did you ever send me? He questions God's wisdom. He's questioned his goodness. Now he's questioning his wisdom. Why did you ever send me? Classic, I told you so. He put up a fight. Moses went willingly for a while. And now he's doubling down saying, I told you I was the wrong man. Thirdly, Moses questions Yahweh's faithfulness. Yahweh told Moses, I will deliver my people from Egypt. And Moses says, at the at the first sign of hardship, No, you haven't. No, you haven't. It, it wasn't too long ago that Moses was bowing down before God in worship at the burning bush, and how quickly his worship has turned into doubt and questioning. So he he attributes these things a God, says he's not faithful to his promises, he's not a wise God, and he's a bad God. He's an evil God. Now, we have to ask ourselves, from where do these questions arise? Is there any legitimacy to these questions? Well, we know they arose out of Moses, but they arose, one, because Moses had uh, unmet expectations, We've all had times where we expected something large or small. We don't get it, and we become angry, sad, depressed, whatever it may be, right? Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That's what the Proverbs say. Moses' hope was deferred. He expected this, this grand salvation to occur in a relatively short time. He think he knew everything of God's plan. God didn't say, I'm telling you everything. He, in fact, told Moses... Do these signs and wonders before him, but no, I am going to harden Pharaoh's heart. And after round one, Moses is like, eh, let's panic everybody. This is all going to pot. <laughs> so he, he has unmet expectations. Okay, that's not, that's not foreign, or that's not, uh, that's not new just to Moses. Any of us, anytime we have unmet Expectations to the Lord, we respond in a like way. But secondly, he's forgetting God's character. Moses is forgetting who the Lord is. God doesn't do evil, He's incapable of doing evil. God is goodness, He only does goodness. God is wise. He only does wise things. He's incapable of doing foolish things. God is true or faithful to his promises. That's what he does. Who God is in himself is what he does. And in case we're wondering if this is putting God in a box, depending on how you classify that box, You put the label God on it, then yeah. God is incapable of being someone other than himself. He is a good, pure, wise, and holy God and a faithful God. And he is incapable of being anything other than that. So, this is Moses' first volley, right, to Yahweh. Now, Yahweh responds in chapter 6, verses 1 to 8. He answers with simply the gospel. Such such blasphemy, really, to Yahweh. How does Yahweh respond? With a patient lesson in history. It actually wasn't too long ago that Yahweh, it might have been wanting to kill Moses. We had that weird story where he, where he needed to be, or his son needed to be circumcised. But here. The Lord responds to Moses' blasphemy with a patient, merciful lesson in history. He says, Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. And I want you to see two things, Moses, and we need to see the same. I want you to see the past grace that I've given Israel. And I want you to see the future grace that I plan on giving Israel. So here's the past grace. Verse three. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. Yahweh called Abraham when Abraham was minding his pagan business in Ur of Chaldees. Abraham was not a righteous man, looking for a deity to worship. Abraham was an idolater, a pagan. And Yahweh graciously appeared to Abraham and said, From you, old man, (laughs) I'm going to make a new nation, really a new humanity. And through you, I will bring a blessing to the world. So it appears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he says, He appeared to them as God Almighty. But by my name Yahweh, we mentioned this last time, I'm reading Yahweh instead of the Lord because we need to understand the personalization of this. By my name Yahweh, verse 3, I did not make myself known to them. Now the the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they weren't completely ignorant to Yahweh as Yahweh. But they primarily knew him as God Almighty because he was the God who was going to take a 99-year-old man, give him a son, and his also fairly old wife, and cause her to give birth. He was God Almighty. He He had might over the womb. He was sovereign over barrenness and over... A fairly very old man and woman. So he was God Almighty. Next it, it says he establishes covenant with them in verse four to give them the land of Canaan. Here's another past grace. He didn't he didn't have to give a covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but he did establish a covenant with them on the basis of his own his own mercy. God mercifully chose Abraham to covenant with. Abraham did nothing, nothing to warm God's heart and say, here's, here's a worthwhile person I should covenant with. No, God mercifully established a covenant. And when he established the covenant to Abraham, he put all the obligations of the fulfillment of the covenant on himself We could go back to Genesis 17. But when the Lord walked through and ratified this, walked through these animals, all divided up, all bloody, gory scene. And when he walked through and ratified that covenant, just Yahweh walked through. If Yahweh walked hand in hand with Abraham, the fulfillment of the covenant, namely land and a blessing and a future Messiah, that would be on both of them to make happen, but only Yahweh walked through. So all the covenantal obligations are on Yahweh to fulfill, not on Abraham. Another thing of grace that he did in the past, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, verse 5, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves. Yahweh has heard. He has heard. His ear has not become deaf to his people. And he, in verse five, he has remembered his covenant. And as we have seen in the past, that remembering of the covenant isn't just aha. I think I, I, think I get it now, but a taking notice, a taking action. God will take action and hear his people's groanings and then perform wonderful works to get them out of slavery. This is all past grace. This is all past grace. And what Moses is being taught, what we are being taught is trustworthiness of Yahweh. His trustworthiness is founded upon, was he faithful to do what he said he was going to do? Namely, If I have problems in the present that cause me to question God, I need to look to the past to see if those are even valid questions. (laughs) My present problems are answered when I look in the past grace of God. In the past, when He did not have to pick Abraham, when He did not have to establish a covenant, but yet he did these things, his faithfulness to his covenant in the past determines, oh, he will be faithful to me now. I don't have to make him prove it over and over again. He's already done that many, many times over again. So in the past, grace. Now, Yahweh says, I'm going to tell you my future plans, my future grace plans for you. Moses, I am, the, uh, I am Yahweh, verse 6. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will do it. Yahweh says, I will do it. Secondly, he says, I will deliver you from slavery to them. I've made a promise to do that, and I will do it. Moses, saints, we live sandwiched in between the ratification and the initiation of a covenant and its fulfillment in the new heavens and new earth. And we live in the middle. And we have all the reason based on past promises and fulfillment of those promises say, God will be as faithful today as he was then. And he'll be faithful in the future as he was then as well. So he, he, he promises these things I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt, I will deliver you. Verse 8. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will give it to you for possession. I will bring you out of one land of slavery into another land of freedom. And I will give it to you. You will not earn it. And he tells the Israelites in Deuteronomy, it is not because of your righteousness that you are now inheriting this land, but is the wickedness of the nations therein. It is not because of any righteousness that we have that God gives us anything. It is only the grace of God. But going back up to verse 7, I skipped over that on purpose. He has in verse 7 a little kernel form of the gospel and of what we would call the covenant of grace that God has made a covenant with his people and it has been established and initiated and sustained by his grace. It says in verse seven, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. You will be my people and I will be your God. That's in Genesis and that's found all the way in Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. That You'll find that all over scripture. You'll find it particularly in the prophets when God's people are in trouble and they need to get deliverance. They need to get saved out of a, A burdensome area. And this covenant of grace refers to a, a dual possession salvation that we belong to God. He cares for us. He saved us. He'll protect us. We are his possession. He will nurture us, care for us as his very children. And on the other hand, he is our God. We take his name upon our lips. And he is the only one we look to. That covenant of grace means everyone who calls upon God belongs to God. They're not alone. They're not not by themselves. They belong to the Lord and they belong to God's people. And likewise, God allows himself to be taken up upon our lips. And we bear his name. We bear his image. Um, Herm, Herman Bavink has a quote on uh, the covenants. And he has, he has a quote. I just want to read to you. Just, it's so good in its succinctness for what is a covenant of grace. He says, in this action, the, the action of the covenant, God obligates himself with an oath to grant the human partner, that would be us, eternal salvation, okay? In this action, God obligates. And if you're not certain if obligate is fair to put on God, he voluntarily obligates himself (laughs) to take a people for himself and to pay for them and to take them as his own. He obligates himself with an oath to grant the human partner eternal salvation despite his apostasy, and unfaithfulness. So God takes and makes a covenant with humans, us, despite our unfaithfulness and apostasy, but by the same token, the human partner on his part or her part is admonished and obligated to new obedience in such a way that if we sometimes, through weakness, fall into sins, we must not despair of God's mercy nor continue in sin, since we have an everlasting covenant of grace with God. The covenant of grace is unalterably grounded, not in our virtues, not in our works, but in God's mercies. This is why it's a covenant of grace and not a covenant of merit. There is a covenant of works. So God says we can do this two ways, essentially. You can be you can be in peace you can be at peace with me by your own works, by your own merit, or you could abandon that whole track <laughs> And I will covenant with myself with you by my grace alone. And even when you are weak and uh, in your obedience and your failings and apostasy, I will still commit myself to you because I will uphold you. And this covenant, this is what God takes upon himself happily. He voluntarily does this. No one twists God's arm. He is... Yahweh, he's free to do anything he wants. He could wipe out humanity from the fall. Or he, could, or he could elect some and save them. He is completely free. Completely free. Nobody is Lord of Yahweh. He's completely free. Now you might say, well, I thought you said he obligated himself. Right. Right in his freedom he obligates himself to do good without without even needing to having to throughout this section of uh, chapter 6 1 through 8 three times in verse 2 6 and 8 he says i am yahweh I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. And this covenant of grace is tied up in that expression, I am Yahweh, because what we see in the covenant of grace is what we see in the heart of the Lord. That he voluntarily, when he saw sin and evil and rebellious humanity, he voluntarily came to us and saved us, even though he could have stood far back from us and said, I'm starting over. (laughs) But being free, he is free to do whatever he wants. He's free to put mercy on anybody he wants to be merciful to or compassion to anybody he wants to be compassionate to. This declaration, I am Yahweh, screams I am faithful to my promises. We might make a promise like, I'm gonna take my kids to Disneyland, okay? And that's just an idea out there, taking the kids to Disneyland. It's just an idea. It's just a suggestion attached with some parental obligation, okay? That's not the promise, the kind of promise God makes. When he makes a promise, it is coming out of his own nature. So he must be faithful to what he said he would give. We, we are we are complex people. I can say cruelly, "I'll promise to take you to Disneyland," and then say, "Sorry, we're not going to Disneyland." God is what we call a simple God. He doesn't do one thing that is out of sort with his nature. Who he is in himself is what he does. So he is trustworthy because he is truth. He is faithful to his promises because he is fidelity. He cannot be anyone other than who he is. Now, to this, he gives a, again, an overwhelming response to Moses and he doesn't smite him although Moses is showing quite pride in his responses, he responds to Moses, and now thirdly, Moses replies with, again, weak faith. He replies in verse 9 to verse 13, it says, Moses thus said to the people of Israel. Okay, so everything Yahweh just said to him in verses one to eight, he relays to Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. Okay, uh, and I, just as a quick aside, it wouldn't be unlike the Lord to humble all parties involved. <laughs> Pharaoh, Moses, Aaron, and Israel so that everybody knows surely salvation has only come from the Lord. No one else could have done this. So they don't believe it. In verse 10, so Yahweh says to Moses, go in and tell Egypt, uh, king, Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let people of Israel go out of the land. Moses says, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How shall then Mo, uh, Pharaoh listen to me? for I am of uncircumcised lips. So Moses says, God, your own people don't even listen to you. What likelihood is there going to be that your enemy, Pharaoh, our enemy, starts to listen to you? (laughs) And on top of that, he says, plus, hey, I am of uncircumcised lips. We'll get to the meaning of that in just a minute but clearly Moses thinks that God's sovereignty has limits. There's still a place in Moses' heart where Pharaoh rules. There's still a place in Moses' heart where he thinks Pharaoh actually matters. That Pharaoh actually could thwart God's plans. And he says, doubling down on himself, Moses Thinks about himself a lot. For I am a man, for I am of uncircumcised lips. It's it's probably worth noting, just I guess real quick right here, this mention of uncircumcised uncircumcised lips probably doesn't refer to some speech impediment or lack of eloquence. Uh, Probably... In my opinion, refers to his own doubt of his own heritage. Moses says, he, "I'm of uncircumcised lips." God has dealt with this issue in previous chapters. Oh, I, I, I stutter and I, I can't speak well. Okay, I'll give you brother Aaron. No, Moses is saying, "I'm not the right man for the job. I, I don't." I'm not called to this because I'm not of the right people. I am I'm an uncircumcised kind of man. Jews obviously being the circumcised group. And then after that, we have a genealogy, which there are many things proven in this genealogy. But we have to understand this genealogy isn't spoken to Moses. Moses writes this in. So we have the dialogue ends in verse twelve, and then the dialogue picks up in seven one, okay? But in between is this genealogy, and the genealogy is there to show to show Moses, no, you are the right man for the job, and you are not a man of uncircumcised lips. You come from you and Aaron come from Amram and Jochebed, your parents who were nameless in previous chapters, but now they're given the name. And Amram comes from Kohath. And Kohath comes from Levi. And Levi comes from Jacob. And Jacob comes from Isaac. And Isaac comes from Abraham. And Abraham has been called by God. Your proof, Moses, is in your election and choosing to be used by God, not of any individual talents, not any eloquence of speech, not by anything other than God has mercifully chosen to do something with you. That is what makes you a man who is appointed for this task. So, jumping down. I'm sure you're not going to read all those names again. <laughs> <laughs> Jumping down to the end of chapter six, this is why I think the uncircumcised lips is a matter of Moses in some way forgetting his heritage. He knew he was a Jew, but he probably didn't know he was a Levite. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. Maybe he didn't know what the Levites were called to do but we would find out levites are people chosen by god to mediate god's word to god's people levites were the priests he comes from a long line of mediators and god says you are a you are a levite and i am the lord there's there's two identity Mentions here, Moses is told, and Aaron too, that they are Levites. And then at the end, verse twenty-nine, Moses says, to, "Excuse me." Yahweh says to Moses, "I am Yahweh." What's more important than Moses' identity as a Levite is this simple district description: "I am the Lord." God says, "I am Yahweh." It's the fourth time that is said in this chapter, why does God keep saying this? Why does he keep saying this? The inevitable question comes a little more obvious. Will the outcome of slavery and promises of freedom be, be dictated by Yahweh or someone else? Will it be dictated by Yahweh or Pharaoh for Moses or who? On what person are the promises of liberation a burden to fulfill? What person covenanted and bound himself to another supremely weak party for their deliverance from bondage? As Moses, as Yahweh says in this chapter four times, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh, I am Yahweh. Hopefully by the end of it, Moses and we understand all of this is riding upon Yahweh. Nobody else matters. Pharaoh doesn't matter a lick. He is but water in the hands of the a, of a God who will turn it wherever he wishes. Moses' so-called excuses of speech impediments or wrong heritage or whatever it may be, that doesn't matter. The only thing that matters when we question God is who is Yahweh? On who did Yahweh decide to put the burden of saving people for himself? He did not put that burden on anyone else. He didn't put that burden on you. He didn't put that burden on me. He didn't put that burden on anybody. He put the burden squarely on himself. So we have this, I am the Lord, I am the Lord, I am the Lord. Moses' blunders here. You can be sure that if you're questioning God, if you're questioning God, you are incidentally looking on him with human limits. And God is saying, I am God. God, there are no limits on me. I will do whatever I want. I am free, and in my freedom, I have constrained my love to you. (laughs) Parents say it all the time. God is saying it here. I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times, I'm Yahweh. Do you get it through your head, Moses? (laughs) Hello, (laughs) Hello? (laughs) flow. God is the eternal, self sufficient, consuming fire who is not dependent on anyone, but is free to do whatever he wants. Moses. I got this. Moses God's saying, It's me. This is who I am, I am the faithful Lord, I am the one, the true holy One of Israel. At the end of the day when it comes to questioning God, the only factor in receiving what he will promise what he will if he, if he's going to fulfill what he promises is, is one thing: is God God? Is Yahweh who he says he is? because if he if he is who he says he is, then you can be sure that he will make good on his promises. Scripture makes it abundantly clear he will move heaven and earth to accomplish his plans, and no one, not even a puny little pharaoh, will get in his way. For I am Yahweh your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. Cush, and Seba in exchange for you. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you, I give men in return for you peoples in exchange for your life. Yahweh does move heaven and earth to accomplish his tasks and no one will get in his way. And above all things, above Pharaoh, above that passage in Jeremiah, uh, Isaiah 43, the most significant thing he can show that he is committed to accomplishing his tasks is to send his son in human flesh to prove nothing, nothing will get in the way of God doing good to his people. We had a twofold problem. One, we have broken God's law and we face punishment for it. And two, God demands us to be righteous, but we can't work up for it. And in Christ, both of those are met. He, Christ takes our punishment upon himself. And two, the righteousness which God demands from us is given to us through Christ. There are, there are a lot of obstacles in the way of saving a bunch of sinners. A lot of them some of them we would think are impossible. Man has to die for sin. But man also needs to live a righteous life. So God sends his son in the form of a human man, truly flesh, truly man, to die for sin as only a man should. But he also needs to be God because God is the reconciler. And and namely, God is the only one who could bear the punishment of sin. Even the incarnation is a testimony that God will move all things to, to accomplish His saving purposes. There isn't a thing that stands in Yahweh's way. It is all on God, and he has accomplished it all in Christ. And for those who are in Christ, all that means is he has promised the covenant. He's going to, ratify, he's going to finish and fulfill that covenant, and the new heavens and new earth. And we, and we live sandwiched in between these two things. And what does he call us to do? We, he, doesn't, he doesn't call us to comprehend every nook and cranny of the mystery. He calls us to trust him. That's all. I trust him. He calls us to, to not do this. Why are you evil? It's a pretty low bar. It's a pretty low bar. Can you believe that I'm going to be faithful to you and that I'm not evil and that I am infinitely wise above your pompous, arrogant, prideful thoughts? Yes. His, way, his ways are way above our ways. So here it is. This is when we question the Lord, our questions are most firmly solved by just remembering those four words in verse 2, 6, 8, and 29. I'm Yahweh. I'm Yahweh. He will do what He promises to do. If you're not in Christ, Flee, flee, flee into Christ. If you're not in Christ today, repent, admit you have sinned, and call upon the Lord and be saved, and he will wonderfully take you in. Because just as sure as he is going to save his people, so certain is he will punish those who are against his people. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we are amazed that you're past finding out. Confess that we think we know more about you than we actually do. Confess that we think we know what you're doing and we don't. Would you give us a posture of trust and childlike faith? that when problems are swirling, expectations aren't met, affliction comes from the left and right, our simple response would be, who is the Lord? You are a faithful Lord, a trustworthy Lord. You are a a near Lord. Thank you that you've given us your Son, as a sacrifice for sin. Thank you that you give us your spirit as a, as a down payment of this covenant. That more spirit, more fellowship and communion with you, Lord, will be had in the future. We look forward to that day. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You can stand for our next song.